Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thank you for being here with us today. You know, I appreciate you because I see the time that you're taking to be able to uh, increase you, but also to be connected with us here on the show. I really appreciate that. You know, Kathy and I love bringing best-selling authors to you. We love sharing what they do with the world. Um, you know, and the cool part about it is, is through the process, we really feel like we know these people. And, you know, I mean, keep in mind that a vast majority of them we've never actually seen face to face, but we really feel close to them in a very special way because they trusted us to be able to share something so deeply personal and intimate with the world. Um, I'm, I'm honored because I know what that means. Um, and really, that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about the deep stuff, relationships, human interaction, collaboration, um, you know, and really even, and this may seem a little superficial, but where you work and the people you hang out with. Um, you know, we've all heard the phrase, or I hope you've heard it, that you're the most like the five people you spend the most time with. Okay, so ask yourself. I mean, I've heard that a million times. And there's maybe been once or twice, and I don't know that it's been exactly a million. It's probably been like 150, okay? But out of those times, there's maybe once or twice that I've actually sat down and said, okay, right now today, who are the five people I spend the most time with? And, you know, and that changes over the course of our life. You know, when you're a, when you're a single parent, like I was, um, you know, the, the five people that I probably spent the most time with were those little human beings. Um, you know, I intentionally worked, uh, you know, when they were, uh, you know, when they didn't need me so that I could be there for them. Um, and it was, a, it, it was a sacrifice I was willing to make is the best way of saying that. Um, you know, there have been times in our relationship where, where, you know, Kathy is absolutely the person I spend the most time with. There's also been times in our business where, I mean, it's just go to go, 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 go. And, uh, you know, Kathy and I will meet at the end of a week or the beginning even of a, you know, a next week and be like, hi, how are you? Tell me about the last month of your life. <laughs> you know, it just is the way that it is. Um, and so who are those five people? Because in those times when it isn't the kids, in those times when it isn't the spouse, um, you know, it, depending on where you work, you know, if you work from home, it may not be the people you work with, but it could be even more so because of uh, internet type of connection that you have with them. And those may be the people you spend the most time with. Um, you know, if you spend a lot of time on social media, there may be some people uh, 
And it doesn't have to necessarily be people who you are private messaging with. It could be influencers on something like Instagram or something like that, that you really are connected to them because they're the person you have chosen to make a primary influencer in your life to be one of those top five. It's a really important thing. You know, honestly, a lot of us have fallen into the trap where the primary influencer in our life are people on TV. The top five people we spend time with are people on TV. Um, you know, I, I, I've kidded a few times that the that one of the top five people I spend time with is Mocha, our little dog. And I know she's not a people, but sometimes it really feels like she is. Um, and maybe that is your reality now or at times in your life too. There's no judgment about who those five people are, but it is important to be aware of that. And then potentially, not judge, but uh, make some best decisions based on where you're going and who best to help you get there. Does that make sense? Because you see, if <laughs> I love Chris Rock's joke where he says, you know, um, you know, if one person in a, in a partnership is, where are you going? And it's like, I'm going to church. And the other person's like, well, I'm going to go hit the crack pipe. You know, that's a relationship that's in trouble. Whereas if both of them are two crackheads, they, they may be able to stay together forever. Um, you know, frankly, my ex and uh, the drug addict that she married that's her third husband or whatever, um, you know, they've been together for the last... 20, 25 years, something like that. Um, so there's some of that too. That doesn't necessarily make it wrong. It just simply does impact the influence that those five people are going to have in your life. And so as we look at dating relationships, collaborations with other people, the jobs that we take, all of those kind of things we need to protect ourselves in the relationships that we enter into. Um, you know, we want to head a specific way, but if we don't oversee that path, if we don't make the choice, life will make the choice for you. I've said that to my kids their whole time growing up, and, and sometimes I wish that I could replay it to them when um, they're having issues in their grown life, but I told them when they were kids, if you don't determine who you are, somebody else will gladly come in and tell you who you're going to be. And that's what we want to do. So we want to have powerful relationships, powerful collaborations. And yes, we want to work someplace that not only makes us feel fulfilled, but surrounds us with people that are the kind of people we want to be surrounded by. I've worked at places, both as a consultant as well as a you know a worker, that I didn't really want to hang out with those people. I've also worked places that because of the people I was hanging out with, it had a negative impact on how I was showing up in the world. That's sad, but it's true. So again, I don't want you to feel judged with this list as you look at it. I want you to simply feel empowered 
as we head into talking about relationships today to look at especially those top five people. And if you find yourself in your list, you know, it's like six or it's even 12, um, don't edit the list because sometimes you spend a lot of time with a larger group of people, like a lot of time. I'm not talking about like, you know, you talk to your mom on the phone once a week, but I'm talking about, you know, like every day you're all but locked in a room with these six or eight people working hardcore on a project and having to have to collaborate with them. Um, you know, so it could be a larger list than that. But I want you to really make that list and then really be honest and upfront with yourself. Is this helping me get to where I want to go? Especially when you talk about the dating and marriage relationships you're in, it's really important that we be equally yoked and that we find somebody that also wants to live and be a thriving entrepreneur. We'll be right back. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. So I know that one of the reasons why you joined in today was to hear from some of our amazing best-selling authors and to get insights into the thing that their best-selling book really helps because they're showing up in the world with the thing that they're powerful at. I really am excited to present these two best-selling authors to you because although their books are on the surface very different, they both deal with that key thing and that's the relationships and the impact that those things have on you. I really hope you're ready to really go up a level because these are some great interviews that are really gonna help you out. Ooh, we're gonna talk about a fun one today, dating. All of us either have or will date somebody and all of us have gone on some really bad dates as well as some really good ones. Um, there are some really good red flags that if you learn how to use them, you can uh, hopefully sooner, quicker, faster know when it's a bad day. To help us with that, we're joined by best-selling author, Courtney Hill Washington, and she's gonna talk to us today about her book, Red Flags, A Girl's Guide to Dating. Hi, Courtney, how are you doing today? Great, thank you. All right, so tell us a little bit about who you are and what led you to write the book. Well, I am a 37-year-old woman. I live in Houston, Texas. I'm married now, but I dated for quite a while. And um, the ending of an engagement that I was in because of some cheating 
caused me to kind of sit down and journal like what I missed in the relationship. And it turned into me um, creating that conversation with other friends, other women, men as well. And it um, caused me to put everything into a book to make it more of a guide for women for things to look out for. So there are a ton of really powerful things that you point out in here. Um, and a person has to get the book to be able to get all of them. But um, let's talk about, you know, one that pops out to your mind. What's your favorite of the red flags that you point out? Um, one of my favorite red flags that was, was hard for me for some reason to grasp, um, but, you know, I know it was because I probably didn't have the confidence that I needed at the time, was because um, I would notice, and I do notice with some people, you'll be in a relationship and the person that you're in the relationship with, they don't want other people to know you're in, in a relationship. So they, they may name some external factors that they have with like a crazy ex or, you know, a child support issue or an ex-wife or they're very private, whatever it is that they don't want people to know that you two are in a relationship. So you're, you know, in essence being hidden. That's a red flag. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if the person isn't shouting from the rooftops that they want to be with you and are with you, maybe you need somebody better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, why do we miss the, the cues, the clues? I mean, they're there. Why do we overlook them or miss them? Well, one of the reasons I think that we miss them is because I know for me, I lacked a lot of confidence. I had issues that I had not addressed in my life yet, just regarding maybe some, some daddy issues, some issues with, you know, some abandonment. So it caused me to, to want a relationship kind of at, at all cost um, and sacrifice myself in the process. But another reason, just, you know, a lot of st statistics and, you know, dating and relationship experts and, you know, different columns talk about is that um, sometimes when people are intimate too early, that creates like a fog over your, your mind. And it kind of puts this thing where you kind of overlook a lot of things because you're already, you know, physically invested. So you kind of ignore some red flags because you've already kind of handed yourself over to someone, so to speak. So you don't want to lose your investment. Mm, so true there is a connection and I think a lot of times we want to pretend it doesn't exist, but there is a connection that comes from those intimacies. Yeah, I agree. So there's an element to it. I mean, this isn't necessarily designed to be a Christian book, but there is an element of the Christianity that you have that comes out in that. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is maybe the biggest problem that to coin the phrase church girls run into that, you know, maybe girls outside of it don't? Um, I think, you know, being a church, uh, well, I don't want to say a former church girl, I still go to church, but it wasn't to the degree when I was younger. But I, I do want to say that something I noticed a lot of church girls run into is sometimes they'll, they'll meet a guy in church or like in a Christian setting or a Christian friend will, you know, hook them up with a guy and then they'll just kind of be all in, you know, like, oh, this person vouches for them or they go to my church or, 
They love Jesus. So, you know, they're not going to hurt me. They're not going to be trying to get in my pants. And then you kind of turn off, you know, um, that part of you that's supposed to be looking out for these things. And sometimes you miss it. It sometimes isn't brought up in dating books, but I know one of the things that may be the hardest is really actually just being single. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? It's very important. And that's something that I, I, I shout from the mountaintops. I think every woman needs to have um, a time of sabbatical, a single season, a time to be alone and invest in herself spiritually, financially, and emotionally, invest in therapy and healing, investing in your friendships, traveling, you know, reconnecting with your family, because if you aren't whole, then, you know, no relationship you have ever will be. Oh, say that again. You want me to say it again or you just Absolutely. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, I was saying if, if you aren't whole, no relationship in your life ever will be. I love how we have holes in us and we think that we can just get somebody else to squish in there and fill them for <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So now that you're on the other side of it, you know, you said you're married and um, I'm assuming since you brought it up that it's a good marriage because <laughs> <laughs> um, you would have just not told us. If, you know. It's great. It's great. Um, uh, what, what do you know now that you're in a good committed relationship that you didn't know maybe the whole time while you were dating? Hmm. I didn't know that, um, and this is something, even after, the book has been written for a long time, but even after I'd written a book and I met my husband, um, I don't know, I, I still struggled with someone genuinely being a good person and genuinely being a nice guy, genuinely liking me, there not being any games, someone being up front. Um, I really struggled with that. And um, I think it was because after I'd come off of my sabbatical, I was, you know, fresh dating again, and I was ready for the other shoe to drop like it had always been and it never did. So that showed me that what I didn't know when I was single was that, you know, that's how a relationship is supposed to go. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be, you know, sleeping with one eye open and, you know, looking over your shoulder and waiting for the other shoe to drop or waiting on the next argument. You know, there's supposed to be a, a good level of peace and respect and honesty in your relationship. And I just, I, I just didn't, I guess I, I knew it was supposed to be there, but I guess I didn't really know it, you know, until it happened. Those are really good words, peace, respect, and honesty. Mm -hmm. mm, that's good stuff. So um, what would be the biggest tip you would give a girl after she's come out of her sabbatical to be able to not just then jump right back into the same kind of dating she was doing before. <laughs> um, I would definitely tell that girl to do some journaling when she met someone and write down things that she likes and things that are a little alarming to her. And from the sabbatical, now you have a new, um, a new relationship with yourself. You know yourself a little better. You know what you want. 
you know, what you don't want from past relationships. So what I would really tell her to do, because this is what really helped me is, you know, when I started dating again, when I saw a red flag, I addressed it. If it wasn't, um, you know, changed or if the person was very combative or dismissive about it, I didn't continue you know, engaging with the person because I was like, well, I'm not going down this road again. You know, like I, I saw something, I called it out and it's like, they just want me to deal and I'm not going to deal. So I would just say, when you do start dating again, you know, do some journaling with these different guys that you meet and point out the pros and the cons, but as well, you know, when you see a red flag, address it and don't waste any time. If there's no change in that area, move on. Hmm. So I want to ask you what may be the most unfair question to ask a girl, but I think all ladies deal with it. And how that is, how do you get past that? Yes, but he has such great potential that all girls seem to fall into. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us do seem to fall into that. And um, I think that if you, see red flags in a relationship and others around you see red flags in your relationship, but you're like really hung up on the potential of what this guy could be. I think that what's happened here is that you've gotten caught up in, and I've been guilty of it myself. You've gotten caught up in being um, almost like a mentor to this person that you're dating. You're trying to raise them. You're trying to bring them to their best. And it's not really your responsibility. Um, I'm not saying like I'm at my best now or I was at my best when I met my husband or he was, but he certainly shouldn't have been a project for me and I shouldn't have been one for him. But when you see so much potential in someone and you're trying to build them and encourage them and mold them and prove to others what you see is real, um, I think that you're kind of caught in um, trying to fill some type of void. Like maybe someone didn't look out for you so now you're trying to look out for this guy. And what happens is you lose yourself in the process. You said something really powerful in there, and that's the trying to prove to them. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a real element of that with the, you see something in this person and now you got to prove to the rest of the world that that person really has it. Yeah. Yeah. And you shouldn't have to do that. That's a red flag that's in my book. You shouldn't be on like a, a press campaign for this guy, for people to see what you see. Because if people don't see it, then like maybe there's something to that. But mom, you don't understand. I'm his publicist. <laughs> <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> Uh, maybe you just need to get a job as a publicist and not date the guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are so many, um, you know, they're really not funny, but yet they are funny when you look back on them, faux pas that we all do in dating. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully we can learn from them, but what would you say to the person who keeps making the same mistake to the point where it is just, almost ludicrously funny to see them keep doing it over and over again. Um, this is really common. And um, I do get this question a lot. And I say the same thing every time. That is a, a, a time for that person to like really step back and take a look in the mirror because you don't keep meeting bad guys. You know, you don't keep, you know, 
getting caught up with guys that just change overnight and they were good at first and now they're terrorists. It's like something is going on within you where you continue to allow yourself to be in these types of situations because something within you is not healed. So instead of stepping back and taking some time to be alone and getting some help with that, you continue to try to fill whatever void that is with the relationship. And since no person can fill a void for another person, what happens is it eventually self-destructs or it's just a toxic thing that kind of goes on and on. And then you step back and realize, oh, here I am again, another bad relationship. Here I am again in another breakup. But you don't really need, you don't really take the time to step back and really evaluate, why does this keep happening to me? What's going on with me? And I think that women that keep repeating patterns need to step back and dig deeper on what's going on within them. What are they missing? What's not healed? Mm -hmm. That's really good. Um, speak directly to the women who, and I, I'm sure you've ever even been through it yourself, who really don't think there's any more good guys left out there. Oh, I hate to hear that because that's absolutely not true. Um, uh, I would definitely just tell those women that if they still feel that way, then, you know, maybe there's, that's, something that they need to kind of address within themselves um, because they don't need to allow anyone or anything or any situation to make them think that it's over for them because no one holds their destiny like that. And I mean, for me to get married at 34, you know, and be on a great path in my love life with my husband after, you know, spending all those years doing bad dating, there's great hope that there is someone out there that will love and respect and treat you the same way as long as you keep that standard. So I would tell them to not give up, but to focus on constantly investing in themselves so that when they do meet that person, it'll, it'll, it'll like, it'll click, it'll match. It won't be, Oh my God, I've been waiting on him all my life. It'll be like, this person is a great addition to my life because finally my life is full without even having a man. This is just a great cherry on top. That's good. So what is one thing that the listeners could do right now today to help them have from now on good dating relationships? Well, I think in order to have good dating relationships, I think that you need to, um, I, like I said, have a, a single season and spend some time, you know, falling in love with yourself. But I think that when we see red flags, we need to address them and we need to allow that to, to be rectified or changed or be a conversation. If it's not, a, if it doesn't happen, you know, in a way that's positive and productive where it changes and the person is receptive to it, I think that you need to move on and not waste any time there. And I think that when you see, you know, um, toxic signs in a person, you know, even though maybe they haven't necessarily done anything towards you yet, that's also a sign that eventually that behavior is going to come in your direction. So it's like focus on a person's character once you get back out there and start dating and focus on the fact that you have standards set. And as long as you allow your standards to remain solid, the person that you're involved with will either rise to the occasion or they'll leave. And if they don't rise to the occasion, then that's not the person for you. But we don't have to try to go back and forth and try to make it work. Our standards are set. We know how we want to be treated. 
We know what we deserve. We know how we want to be loved. So if we keep that bar high, somebody will meet that. And we don't need to deal with anybody that won't. Mm, that's awesome. The book is called Red Flags, A Girl's Guide to Dating by Courtney Hill Washington. You can get it on Amazon today. Courtney, I really appreciate you spending some time with us, giving some really powerful advice to girls as they're going into the dating world or going back into the dating world. Thank you so much for today. I really appreciated it. Especially when you're dating, you know, you want to spend a lot of time with that person. Um, and if the relationship is going to go somewhere, you're going to need to spend time with that person. So it's really important that that type of relationship, you really follow the advice that Courtney's giving in this because without it, you can very quickly find yourself someplace that you didn't want to go and end up, rather than thriving in life, uh, wishing that life were different. And so let's not do that. Let's all live as thriving entrepreneurs. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. So we talked about your personal life. Let's move on to the business side of things, where you work, where you as a business collaborate. This is so important, and I really hope that you're ready to take this area of your life up a notch as well. Collaboration in business is one of the best, most productive ways that you can advance your business to the next level. And to be able to help us with that today, I'm delighted to be joined by Todd Palmer as he talks about his book um, and tells us a little bit about collaborating in business. Hey, Todd, how are you today? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So tell me um, a little bit, first of all, just about who you are and what you do in the world. Well, I am currently the president and CEO of Extraordinary Advisors and the retired president of Diversified Industrial Staffing. Uh, I got my career start about 25 years ago when I opened my recruiting business. And in that time, we helped with about 6,000 people, give or take, over that course of that time frame, find new employment opportunities. And uh, from our perspective, it was a really, really rewarding ride to be able to affect and impact 6,000 families, 6,000 lives, and, and companies all across the United States. Now what I do is I do a lot of uh, speaking and coaching around the topics of, of leadership, 
and about how to grow and scale your business, but also how to turn your business around if it's struggling. And a lot of those pieces do come in through the, the portal of either communication or challenges in the communication model. We often find that there's a, a big gap and a disconnect between the core values of the leadership team and the mission statement of the organization. And we go in and work with the, the leadership team, it's often the entrepreneur or the CEO, to get them in alignment, getting them going in the right direction. And we've helped us companies do some pretty tremendous things over the last couple of years. That is really cool. I was reading here in the information just before the call, and you're talking about, it talks about the fact that you have six times helped a company make the Inc. 500. Um, I am dying to hear how you did that, and is that a realistic goal for everybody? Um, sure, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think we could spend the rest of our time just going over that. The, the crazy thing about it is right before our come and that was the company we started diversified industrial staffing that was on the Inc. 5000 uh, record six times before the year before that company made the list for the first time it nearly went out of business we were six hundred thousand dollars in debt I was about two months away from running out of money completely and I walked in on September 9th about six fired the entire company started over then we made the Inc. 5000 for the very first time 12 months later and it's, it was definitely a, an iterative process. We tried a lot of different things. Some worked, some didn't work. We kept what worked. We got rid of what didn't work. We stopped hiring people, for example, who came from the recruiting space or the HR space. Then we came up with a model called a hire for DNA, not for resume. Hired people from restaurant, from retail, from uh, administrative positions, converted them, converted, converted them into being recruiters. And that was a big change. But to, to say to somebody that a realistic goal is to make, to make the Inc. 5,000 six times, that's, that's really a, a tough road to home. There's a lot, of, um, a lot of iterative challenges that one runs into. You, you run into essentially the, the idea potentially of growing out of business. So we were going to run out of money before because we didn't have enough. Then you, you grow out of money because you're spending it so quickly trying to keep up with that trajectory. So I always recommend to people, the clients I work with, if you have a 15 to 20% year-over-year growth model, you're going to do very well for a very long time. So 15 to 20%, that's, that's not, you know, I mean, that's actually pretty conservative. Do you think that there is initially some more dramatic numbers than that? Or do you think that really first year a person should really, you know, slate themselves at doing about a 20% growth even that first year? Well, when we were doing that, that, when you started getting up in those numbers, we'd been in business for 10 years. So I think you have to take a look at what the trajectory of the company is. It's, I think it's pretty, uh, it's not uncommon to have, you know, double digit, triple digit growth numbers in the first one to five years of the company. We're going at 100%, 200%, 300%. That's not uncommon. But, but I would let, definitely let your, your listeners know that, you know, the, the reality is in the, in the business landscape in the United States, less than 5% of all companies that are incorporated ever reach a million dollars or more in revenue. And uh, so you can, you know, if you're a, I got a client right now who's doing really well, they're running a, below the, the 1 million mark, but they've increased their margin by a factor of almost six. So, you know, the, really, the, I think the key for a lot of businesses is the top number is fun to talk about, but it's that bottom line number that you really want to take a look at. Not everybody can be Amazon and lose money for, you know, a couple of decades and then hit, reach that, that inflection point and become very, you know, very successful with that kind of run rate unless you have deep pockets and deep cash. And if you don't have those VCs, those angels, those friends, family, and fools investing in you, 
it's very, very difficult organically to maintain triple digit growth numbers without bringing in outside money. Well, and Amazon had the advantage of being around before the first dot-com bust. So <laughs> there was a lot of money being thrown around back then. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, so growing your business out of business, um, what, what do you think is probably the biggest thing that people do to overgrow their business, if that's the right way of saying that? Well, you know, what I've seen with the clients that I've worked with is that the entrepreneur alone is an entrepreneur at risk mindset where the, the entrepreneur thinks they're the, they have all the ideas, They've all, they have all the best ideas. They, they either surround them, themselves with either a weak leadership team or sometimes no leadership team at all, and they just keep selling, 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 selling. And they think they can sell themselves out of problems. They think they can sell themselves into profitability. And often what it takes is that, that entrepreneur to look in the mirror and figure out what they really want this business to provide to them and what, can they, what are they willing to provide to that business. Oftentimes, it's not necessarily always selling every opportunity to get or taking on every deal you can. If you take on so much, and you, it's beyond your capacity for delivery, and you have to outsource it. We see a lot with manufacturing companies. They take on more than they can handle. They'll subcontract out the business to smaller shops. The smaller shops are charging a decent rate. The larger shop has taken on you know, volume business at a lower margin. They end up often working for cost. And then when you're working for cost, you're not making any money. So your top line continues to grow, but we, you get very vulnerable very quickly because you're not putting any cash reserves away. So it's really important to recognize, you know, what is your runway for your cash reserves? Are your margins at or above your industry standards? And, and look at your revenue number third. You can have a great revenue number by taking on loss leader business and not make any money and take a lot of fiduciary risk that a lot of start off entrepreneurs don't really understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's amazing the things that you learn two, three, four years in that you wish you would have known the first year, but really honestly, you probably couldn't have handled if you did. <laughs> so, um, you know, let's talk a little bit, and I hope this doesn't feel like too much of a pivot, but because I was a single dad for about five years too, I'm really curious to hear what being a single dad taught you about running a company. You know, I appreciate the question because I know there's, I appreciate anybody as well who's, who's done the single parenting route. I, I received uh, the blessing of getting into custody of my son when he was only two years old. And that was before I started the company. I, I was probably two, three years before I started the businesses. And it really helped me focus up on what was most important. Meaning, you know, I got, I, I'm a creative visionary by nature. Well, I got very scheduled disciplined when I was trying to start a company, grow a company and grow a young man. Um, he would be the first young man in daycare, <laughs> five, six in the morning some days. I'd go into the office and I'd, he'd be the first one out at four o'clock in the afternoon. And from four to eight, that would be our time together. And he would be in bed at 8.01. And I'd go back to work from eight to midnight, day after day after day after day. In fact, an interesting story is now, gosh, he just turned 28. So we were just talking recently. We, uh, he graduated college and we were hiking in the mountains of Peru. And he brought up the story of being the company being in such bad shape in 2006, being so far in debt. And he remembered a story that I had kind of forgotten where, you know, I had the option of filing for bankruptcy and shutting the business. And it was, you know, it's a legal maneuver, a legal mechanism I could have, I could have chosen to do. 
And he, he remembers me telling him the story about how I could not make that, I was unwilling to make the bankruptcy decision back in 2006 because I was told him he had to honor his commitments and I'd made commitments to my vendors and to my bank. And I always told him that he's going to be a person of integrity and a person of honesty and that we do our very, very best until the, and you know, we're hiking in Peru and he remember, he goes, do you remember telling me that story? I said vaguely, he goes, because it stuck with me ever since. So it, these crazy life lessons able to, to pass on to him while managing and running a business. Uh, it, it, it's crazy how, how you know, 20 years later it pays immediate or uh, you know, long lasting dividends. Mm. It also proves the old saying: "More is caught than taught." <laughs> yeah, it's it's they're they're so observant. They're just observant little creatures, and they will. You, you, what you say, and if it, if you, what you say does not match with what you do, they they can see that differentiation. Mm, absolutely, they can. So let's uh, dive into the four pillars of successful business. Um, so talk to us a little bit, uh, you know, an overview of cash strategy, execution, and people. Well, from, from my experience and from my, my work with my clients at Extraordinary, it really does all start and end with the people you choose to have on your team, the people you choose to work with, the people you choose to have as your customers, et cetera, et cetera. It's a people first situation. Now, it's the people who make all the decisions about the cash. It's the people who make all the decisions about the strategy and the execution, as well as the, they make all the decisions about all the people that to get to be on the team. So often when I'm working with leaders and their leadership teams, it's interesting as they change and as the leaders change and evolve with our work together, how many times people will self-select off the team. I've had one client, for example, They've turned over their entire leadership team in the year we've been working together, and they've seen tremendous growth. They weren't even aware that the people they trusted, the people they liked, the people they brought onto the leadership team, unfortunately, were just not the right fit. And one person left on their own, another person left, was asked to leave, et cetera, et cetera. But it's often very difficult for the leaders to take a look at the people. And the last person the leader often has to take a look at, and it's often the hardest one for them to look at, is themselves. And look at themselves in the mirror and look at what, you know, what do they, what do they want this business to be? Do they want it to be a legacy business? Do they want it to be a business to build and sell. What do they want it to do and what's going to be different and what are they going to, what's their special unique ability and how can they drive that through the organization? And until they figure that out, it gets really, really bumpy, but you know, it, it's tough to talk to Like we're talking about the, the revenue piece. I've had some entrepreneurs that want to just grow, 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 grow margins, secondary, revenue, primary, when really if we can flip that mindset within that person to focus on the margin, that I've got one, one company, they, they're just, they're going gangbusters on the revenue, but they've grown that margin so significantly that's now it's in a position where it can actually create generational wealth that they never even thought of a year ago they could do, but it took that person to shift their mindset. So for me, Steve, it always begins with people. How do you know? I mean, how do you really know? I've, I've done lots of interviews with lots of different interviewing techniques, but how do you really know when you've got the right person? Is there a secret sauce to it? I'm a big fan of, of, of designing the questions to bring out the best of that person. And be, being in the recruiting space, you know, for my business specifically, when we were redoing it and retooling it, we could hire 
people, we could take chances on people who didn't have a lot of experience in our area. Uh, we hired a guy who worked at the Olive Garden. He's still with me today. And he was, a, he was a waiter. He was doing a great job. But we found out what was important to him. We found out his core values matched my core values. His core values matched the company's core values. I always tell clients, if you're struggling getting the right people on your team, what are your core values? And can, are you living your core values? Do you have stories to your core values? And are you able to, to hire and fire based on those core values? If you're able to do those things, then you're going to start doing a lot of the right hiring pieces. Often clients are going to hire out of necessity and out of desperation, and they're going to put somebody on their team who's not a good fit. They may have the great skill set, but they, 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 they're, they're toxic to the culture. They're poisoned to the atmosphere. That's the biggest challenge. So, you know, we ask questions like, um, you know, if I wasn't going to hire you, Steve, can you give me three reasons why? That tells me how self-aware you are. You know, so if you're going to be a recruiter, let's say, well, Todd, I don't have any recruiting experience. And, you know, I'm looking for a, sa a salary higher than what you're willing to pay. But in return, for the, if you hire me, I'll do this, this, and this for you. That's somebody we can have a conversation with. Um, it's, it's, again, goes back to the companies that often have to hire out of desperation who don't have an ongoing bench of people they can go to and they only hire when someone leaves and there's an opening. And we tell our, our, our candidates that are looking for jobs, 80% of jobs are never listed anywhere. So apply to companies you really want to work at. Use some of these interview techniques we can teach you so you can go out and get those, those hard-to-find jobs that are going to be long-lasting. But you've got to remember, as the candidate, you have to present yourself in a way where you're an asset to the corporation, while at the same time, the corporation has to make themselves attractive to you. 80% of jobs are not listed anywhere. That's correct. So is it just somebody in the company that knows that they need to fill a position, but they're not telling anybody here? It's, it's internal? It, or it's that that? And so much more. It's, 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 and it's an absolutely crazy thing. She's thinking, I've, I got this work to do. I don't have anybody here to do it. And they, you know, they're, a lot of people, you'd be, it just shocks me. A lot of people are afraid to make a hiring decision afraid to make the wrong hiring decision so they don't make any hiring decision and they take the work and they, they spread it out already over a maybe a thinner team or they'll take the work on themselves it's just insane um you know that i always tell my clients i do a whole speech on, on how, to, how to do how to really do you know stealth hiring and you have to remember as an employer your best source of your next hire are your current employees and the number one reason people leave jobs is because they don't like their boss. So you have to remember as the CEO or as the department lead, the people stay or people leave primarily because of you. Now the work could, maybe the work isn't as challenging. They may leave, you may get those occasional people who do that. But people will stay working at a job that may be challenging or tough because they like the people they work with. And they may have a job they love, but a boss they hate, they will quit. Especially today's economy with you know, less than 4% unemployment, they can quit tomorrow and have another job by Monday. So it really does start and end with leaders. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Um, it'll really make you think, and I, I mean, I'm glad that I own my own company, so I don't have to, but it really makes a person think about where they should get a job. That's interesting. Well, and I always tell, especially for, I work a lot with universities, and I'll tell the kids, like, you guys want to pick the companies you want to work at and figure out, go to LinkedIn, figure out, Who's the hiring manager you'd want to work for you? So if you want to get into IT, who's in charge of IT or who's in charge of accounting or who's in charge of human resources or whatever department it is, and just reach out to them directly. Go right through LinkedIn. It's a really easy, 
portal. You don't have to call through a phone tree like you did 20 years ago. Send them your information. Tell them why you want to work there. You'd be surprised that job seekers basically are pretty lazy with things like Indeed and ZipRecruiter. One push button applying, they can apply for 25 jobs sitting at a traffic light where if they actually take the time to dig in, find 10 companies they're excited to work for, they can tell those 10 companies why they want to work there and go find those hiring managers through a LinkedIn or something else, you'd be surprised that those guys who don't get a lot of resumes or don't get a lot of communication from the outside world from job seekers will be often very excited to work with that quote unquote, that young ambitious go-getter. Wow, that is really cool. And this all of course ties back into your book, The Job Search Process. You even talk about how you can find a great job in, is it less than six weeks? Well, in today's economy, it's probably less than uh, less than two weeks if you do it right. The, the, the economy is very, very strong right now for candidates. We're seeing a lot of movement with the book right now because it's, it's uh, high school and college graduation season. It's a great gift for people to, to give to that young person in their lives because a lot of kids don't know how to find a job. And especially at the university level, a lot of parents think that the university is positioning their kids to go out and be ready to be employable to go out and find a job. But the reality is most universities, not all, but most, see themselves as educators first. They're not getting kids job prepared or job ready. They're getting, giving them an education that they're paying for. And you'll see kids, you know, the kids are gonna graduate in the next, you know, they've either graduated or they're graduating in the next month. You know, come October, November, they're still jobless because they didn't know how to find a job. They didn't connect with anybody at their career counseling office. They don't really know what to do. And that's really what the book is designed to do is to help them figure out that 80% of jobs are never posted anywhere, that the millennials have an unemployment rate of 13%, where the United States has an unemployment rate of 4% overall. So there's even fewer of them getting into the job market. So they can, if they can figure out who they want to work for, they can approach that hiring manager behind the scenes, not always going through an HR portal or even going through a recruiter. They will put, make themselves you know, one of three candidates versus one of 100 candidates that apply to an ad, and it gives them such a competitive advantage, and it positions them, like I said earlier, to be that above-average job seeker that you know, it's something that is super rewarding for people to see. I love it when I get an email from somebody, hey, I read your book, and I, you know, I, I, I got three offers in a week. I just had a young man I worked with this summer, not this, I mean, sorry, this past fall. He moved back to, from California to Michigan over the Christmas holiday season in the winter time. And he went on five interviews in one week and got five job offers following our method. And then he had the choice. He was in a position of power to pick the job that best fit him. And I just, I just love hearing those stories. Absolutely. That is really great stuff. So we started off the show talking about collaboration. And if you could just do us a favor here at the end and kind of give some people, what is one way to really find somebody good that they can collaborate with in their business? Are we talking employees, other businesses? What, what do you think of when you think about uh, suggesting people to collaborate with to businesses? There's a, there's a whole bunch of options, I think. So if you're the CEO or you're the entrepreneur, you can collaborate with your peers. You could join a group like, EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, you can join YPO, you can join a Vistage group where you're talking peer-to-peer and you're collaborating, sharing best practices. If you're an employee and you want to you collaborate with, with people across department, then go to your, your leadership and your management team and say, listen, I need these skill sets in my area. 
I don't have them, but I know Bob over in this department or Sue over in that department can do that. Can we create a networking group? Um, you can connect, you know, there's a lot of uh, closed groups through even like a WhatsApp or an Asana where people are, are plugged in by a, a culture champion, for example, to, to create different collaborative environments. I think if you're going to collaborate with somebody, the, the, some of the big key factors are you have to know what your story, you have to have a high level of self-awareness, I think. And that self-awareness comes to two factors. One, here's everything I do think I know pretty well, but I'm always looking to grow. And here's a list of things I don't do very well, but I know I need. And I need to find someone to help me with that. And in turn, I can offer them my skill sets. A lot of entrepreneurs are very visionary, but they need that, that integrator who can, who can ground them and get things done within an organization. So if you have a, I know one of the mistakes I made early on when I started my company is I hired a lot of people who were visionary like I was, who were, were dreamers like I was, who were great to talk to in the interview, super fun, but we couldn't get anything accomplished because nobody was sticking to the, to the process implementing the process and holding anybody accountable to the process. So if you're going to collaborate with somebody, you may think you have these wonderful strengths. And you want someone just like you. I think sometimes the, the best, the best yin to your yang is someone who's opposite of you. So again, you can go to a, a peer group, you can go, you can create different groups within an organization. Um, but I think for the things that I've seen work best though, is really the, those people have high self-awareness. They know what they do well. They know what they don't do so well, and they find people that can they can plug into. They can offer their skills and abilities, and they can receive those skills and abilities from somebody else. That's where I've seen it work the best. I've been talking with Todd Palmer, the author of the book The Job Search Process, and the leader of the company Extraordinary Advisors, um, founded ExtraordinaryAdvisors.com. Todd Palmer is the collaborative business advisor and he helps people get shit done in their business. I really appreciate the time that you spent with us today, Todd. Um, and I know that there are people who are going to want to go deeper with you. Should they go to your website or what is the best way for a person to take the next step with you? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Have them come to my website, extraordinaryadvisors.com. Go to the contact button. Send me their information. Anybody who reaches out to me, they mentioned that they heard me on your program today. I'm happy to give them a half hour of my time for free. We can talk about if you're a young person, you're looking for a job, I can help you with that. If you're an executive CEO or leader within your organization, you're running into some challenges, we can talk about that. If you're, let's hope, let's hope you're not the, the guy like I was, $600,000 in debt. How do I turn this thing around? I'm happy to have those conversations as well. So I, I appreciate being on your program today, Steve, and I'm happy to give that, that offer to, to anybody who mentions me, uh, mentions um, hearing me on your program today. Thanks, Todd. I really appreciate you spending time with us on the show today. Thank you. What did you get out of that? I mean, there was just so much we packed into that, talking about collaboration with people talking about some huge insights in ways to get the job you want. Uh, oh man, there's just so many great things in there. The several takeaways that I want you to really embrace is all around the concept that you are in control and you need to take control of those things that are going on. You need to be in control of those influences in your life, the places you work, the things you're doing. Um, you know, going back to Courtney's interview, to the people that you've put into your life. All of these things are so hugely important because they really do focus the direction that we're heading. And that's really what it's about. Um, you know, it's not that 
uh, you know, because some of you, I mean, you know I'm a third generation minister, so sometimes one of those five people, hopefully not all of them, are, you know, people that are, you know, kind of your ministry people. Um, I have a good friend of mine that I just talked to about a month ago via messenger, and um, it's so exciting to see that now, oh gosh, almost 30 years later, he is still clean and sober, um, really working for the Lord, doing some great things. Um, and I was just a tiny part of helping him get hooked up with Teen Challenge, and he had to do the work. Um, you know, but during the time before that, he would have been one of those five people in my life. And that's okay, too. You, you can have those uh, ministries, people that you're doing, but if all of them are that, they tend to drag you to their level. We need some people that drag us up, that up-level us. And then, and here's the last secret, and you knew this was coming. Then you need to share that uniqueness that is you with the world. You need to write it in a book. It needs to be available for people for the rest of all eternity. Because that person you are and the person that you're becoming you need to see that person. You are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose. And the world needs you. Not, I mean, we need each other, but we need you to be the best version of yourself. And when we cloud who we are because we've surrounded ourselves with people who are just okay, I'm not even talking about the people that are dragging us down, but the people that are just okay. It really makes a mark on our message with the world. And the last thing to keep in mind in all of that is, that was never meant for you. It's meant for those people that you're meant to serve. So I do hope you'll share your message with the world. I do hope you'll surround yourself with amazing people, collaborate with great folks, get a job at a place that really fires you up and that the people that are there really get you and are going the same direction that you are. Because I wanna see, Kathy wants to see you really live in your best life, to live every day of your life as a thriving entrepreneur. We'd love to see that. We're excited for your book to come out. Feel free to reach out to us at Bestsellers Guild. Know that we're here for you any way we can to help you so that you can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. Until next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business. Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. 
that message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today.